Today is a tech day and I just kind of want to go over some of the tech advances that's been going on and uh, maybe a little bit of what I think that we're going to see in the direction of technology. And then I, I guess for the last part, I want to talk about technology I'm trying to make happen as well as technology I have made happen and how sometimes the... In, Making technology better can sometimes be just as difficult as making cars safer, houses better, more efficient, or, you know, it's just as difficult. And that's kind of the, the route we're going to talk about today. What has, what is, and what may be in the future. Well, for today's backlog, I've... To be honest, I'm not too entirely sure what to talk about, so I'm just going to kind of talk about stuff that might be relevant to what's coming up in the rest of the podcast. So um, one of the things that we see with uh, technology um, is for the longest time, it was always, you know, this technology didn't mix with that technology, you know, third-party companies were needed to kind of fill in the gaps that that major companies didn't want to do, which ultimately was becoming an optimal or where they worked together, regardless of what's who made it or anything like that. And and I have to admit, like the the Chinese uh, system for technology is kind of was a, a ahead of its time, and all that means is basically anyone who makes something in China, uh, they they make a, they get a patent or anything like that type stuff. It becomes available to every tech industry in China. So if Samsung makes a chip um, and it's in, you know, made in China and everything and their patents and everything are in China, then all the other companies in China can access that data. They don't have to pay anything. You know, it's free. It's there. Um, And that might not be perfectly true. There might be some kind of cost or something. But the point of it is, is not only does the government know about it, they can build stuff around it, but other companies who wouldn't normally have the money, like in America, if, if you know, at, you know like when Windows came out with, with uh, DOS, uh, for the longest time, like, the, like there were other versions of similar type of tech, but to get the exact same one, you basically had to figure out how to code it on your own. And, that takes time, money, research, dedication, manpower, it takes all these things. But if they just could be allowed access to the information and be able to use it, I mean, the, we could have actually saw a much faster tech boom earlier on. And there, there's a, a few thousand years ago, there was a, a person that had mathematical knowledge beyond anyone at the time. And there was actually a king that wanted to access this individual but he knew that if he said hey we're trying to get him for good reasons there would be other kings that would want him for bad reasons or even murder and so he sent two teams into the town or that he was this man was supposedly at and one team was destroying things um and the other team was actually looking for him and so both teams like the team destroying stuff didn't know anything about the other team and uh in the quake of everything, the team destroying things and killing people and stuff, they accidentally came across him and killed him. And although the king had a good thought of, well, 
I can't just announce this is what we want to do and stuff like that because that's kind of like how it is in America. You can't just go, hey, look, I'm going to build this and then try to build it because there might be a company that can afford it to do it faster than you. And at the same time, he understood, you know, that King understood that this type of mathematical knowledge could be important. And then all that knowledge and, and know-how kind of went down the drain with his death. And there are some people and scholars and stuff to say that that set us back for, you know, 2,000 years that set us back where what we could have been doing in the 50s, they, you know, stuff they, we figured out in the 50s, he already knew about. And we just, no one knew how to figure it out because they didn't have the knowledge. And so we're starting to finally see in technology where companies and stuff, they're starting to understand that we can go along faster the more we communicate, the more open source technology is used and all those different things. And, and I think that's important for our future. Okay, so after hearing the backlog and hearing what this is about, what we really need to start with is a little bit more modern times. So um, in the early 2000s, technology had this huge boom where but we still had like three or four major types of tech. We had Linux, Windows, Apple, and subsidiaries. Subsidiaries is a combination of everything. Sometimes they're, they're Linux-based, and they build on top of that, and like Linux and things, you know, and they, they figure out other ways to do stuff. But really, we had these three major giants in technology. Um, the people who were certain open source, you know, stuff, you know, GNU and things like that, they, they really made a, a difference, which cryptographers were able to then build up upon information and build on these, you know, open source type stuff, so that way they could actually, you know, like, one cryptographer could build something, put it out publicly, and another cryptographer could use it and actually perform actions. And if it wasn't for stuff like this, we wouldn't have Bitcoin. We wouldn't have this um, higher-end currency-type stuff, we digital currency and things like that. Because not a lot of people actually know about SHA-1 coins. They existed. I mean, we still use SHA-1 all the time. We use these needless, not very good uh cryptography style of coins which you know nowadays you wouldn't call them coins you call them tokens because they're naturally they don't actually transfer value or anything they actually are used as a proof and that's kind of what built what bitcoin's built behind this ideal that money can be proofs of work and money can be proofs of this and proof of that and we're, we're starting to see some technology catch up and so what I mean by that is, okay, for the longest time, Linux was king for, crypto, for cryptography, crypto, uh, crypto te, you know, technology. And, but we're actually starting to see like things being built up on top of Android, things being built up on top of Windows, things being built up on top of Apple, where you know, there, there no longer has to be open source technology to still build these things. And, and even... Uh, Linux is talking about, hey, we might have um, a way to, you know, embed this that this stuff into our kernel, to where Windows stuff will be, a, you know, usable on on Linux without having to get Wine or Wine tricks or do all these little things to have access to the same type of technology, and so it's like that. They're starting to become inoperable to other systems, even though they're Linux, you know. And Linux is always open source, free technology type of concept. There is closed source Linux as well. And we're starting to see more of the closed source Linux 
um, use more open source stuff. And it's so that we're slowly getting to this open source technology. And I think the, the, the closer and faster we get there, the faster technology can grow. Um, where before, if you wanted to put a video game on Linux, you either had to be a hell of a coder that understood Windows and Linux, or you, you had to wait a few years to 10 years before someone else figured out how to build something to allow that game on Windows or Apple to work on Linux. And so that's, that's, that's awesome that we're getting to a new point in life where technology can go a lot faster, you know, um, certain types of batteries that were never able to be understood or starting to be understood more by people who don't have the technical knowledge to take the stuff apart and figure out what it means and all this, figure out what kind of compounds it is because the, the you know, the patents and stuff are expiring so we can actually see it. And because of that, there's just this boom and all these different types of tech. And we got companies like Libra 5 coming out with their own cell phone that's Linux-based, has no Google, no this, no that, and all these different things. And we're starting to see small companies turn into big companies. We're starting to see crypto crypto companies turn into giant armies, conglomerates, and we're just seeing all this stuff really fast. And what I what I think that means for the future is we're going to get to a point where like it's a constant innovation, and that constant innovation is going to rapidly increase. And it's going to break Moore's law a little bit. Here's a great example. Okay, so as Ethereum is doing Ethereum 2.0, which is we're going from proof of work, where we run machines to do to build these, you know, do all the math for all these proofs, to proof of stake, where that's no longer needed. It's more nodes interacting together in a certain specific way against rule sets that they can't deny. And as we get to that point, companies are you know, who make GPUs, which is what a lot of Ethereum is, miners run, a lot of major crypto miners run uh, GPUs, they're finally starting to catch up to where they were like, hey, we're going to release um, crypto-specific GPUs, and we're releasing GPUs that they can, you know, 10 times tower as the one just a year before, or two years before. Um, and so... It's like it's coming at the last minute, and that's bad. But we did see just like you know uh, five or six years ago where um, ASICs were coming out. And at first, ASICs were CPU-based, and they were all specially designed uh, chips that would just perform certain types of actions as fast as they could, and specifically that one action or that one cryptography type or that one thing. And now we have a chipset that's so specific, but it can perform more than just one action where we can build extremely specific microchips to to replace gpus and we'll see that with the m1 chip from apple for example and we can now we're also getting to a point where we can build these graphical processing units that are so specific to video game that you know the amount of power they're really harnessing is so much more than it ever has been before and where we can lower the need on the actual machine by having this better GPU, maybe a little bit more RAM, and we're really able to not have to worry about, okay, we can put this in so much more machines, and the machine just has so much more power, even without having a bigger, better CPU. Because that's how it was for the longest time. You wanted a really great GPU, you gotta have more RAM, you gotta have more, a better CPU, you gotta have 
good motherboard, you gotta be able to transfer data on there, you gotta have hard drives just as fast. Well now we're getting the solid state drives where the, the the saving data is faster now and that allows for even more and we're slowly working our way to a way to store data is completely without chips, without hard drives, without solid state. And I think that's really another future as we get to a point where online saving is more important than offline saving. We're going to be able to have um, machines, entire computers that are just throwawayable. If something happens, just get rid of it, get a new one to save the GPU. Save the RAM and the GPU, get rid of the actual machine, get a, get a whole new one, it don't matter. It'd be cheaper, be cheaper, be cheaper. Because, I mean, like for example, some of the stuff I work on, um, private paper, where we actually store data inside of a hash and it no longer needs to be stored on a server in order for people to view it, we can actually give them this hash and they can decrypt it. And we can run nodes, which are super minimal and super easy, which is basically in this, in the example I'm giving private paper node is a script. It's not even an actual node, it's just a script of data. You insert that into your machine with, with what we, you know, the hash we give you and boom, you can see what we said. And it's this awesome way of storing data where the storage is actually not online and not offline, but it's still there. And that's the type of technology that's going to really push us forward. And it's a hash. It's a cryptography type data and um, quantum mechanics, quantum computers uh, can really rely on hash. Hashing data is just a very specific way of, of uh, mathematically getting to something that's encrypted or taking something and mathematically encrypting it. And so if we can take binary data and mathematically distort it, we can actually build something that perhaps maybe even quantum computers can't solve very easily. And that's kind of the ideal is like, as quantum mechanics gets stronger and stronger, we have um, more powerful quantum machines. The ability of stopping them from being able to see what's going on is going to get harder and harder because binary is so simple. Now, we are seeing trinary chips come out. That's instead of 0, 1, 0, 1, 2. And there has been trinary before, but when you have computers that can actually run trinary, you can have something called true trinary, which is a lot more difficult. You can take binary and code out trinary data sets and any binary machine can figure it out. But if you have a trinary computer doing trinary code on trinary data sets, uh, binary computers might not be able to figure that out. You know, it can almost become so complicated, even binary computers had to have a whole lot of information just to figure out how to do it. Well, we can do the same thing with binary. And these manipulation types that we see in cryptography and, and, and open source technologies, it's slowly changing the ground of what we do digitally. And as that ground keeps changing and keeps evolving, um, it's just going to help push the innovation. Because if we have computers that no longer need a storage, you just remember a set of, of words, 27 words, 32 words, then 
it doesn't matter what computer you have. You would go into your storage on the computer and type in your words, your private key, hit enter, and then boom, it can decrypt it and figure out what you were trying to access, what was stored. And these these this type of technology is so new that people think it's so um, uncapable. You can't do something like that. And that's kind of something I've been dealing with for at least 20 years. So my coding experience has never been that great. First started learning how to code when I was about 14 years old because I went to my dad and said, I want to learn how to code. And we had family, a family member, one of my uncles, who did that stuff. So it's not like he didn't know what it was, but he didn't know where to start. He didn't know what to do. We had only had a computer for maybe a year or less. And I already knew it's what I wanted to do. I didn't know much about it. I knew you can make video games. That's about all I knew, and that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to build video games. And I have here and there. Never built anything worth a damn, but I have done it, and I'm glad that I've actually been able to do something. But after I took, you know, after I started learning coding, I in high school I was able to take a class about computer programming for C++. And uh, computational programming plus. So I had C, had C pound, and or sharp, and then the additional stuff that I like to call similar to the JavaScript layer of C, and that allowed uh, that really opened my mind because I basically came in the classroom knowing four programming languages, but didn't know any of them so well enough that I was able to do a whole lot. And uh, uh, the teacher just handed me a book, and he said, "Everybody just goes through it one page at a time. You do it." Do each one, you know, you only have to do one a day. Get as far through the book as you can. I eventually, and within this half a year course, went up to him and said, okay, I need to do more. I'm out, I'm done, I'm done with the book. And he was just like, what? <laughs> How are you? We're not even halfway through the, this course and you're done with the book? Like, I've, I've done them all, I've done it. And then so he was like, I need you to use the information you learn, build something, build a program or something. And I built a program in school where you didn't matter what kind of class you took. If you had a class in our school and you were at a computer, when you saved documentations onto the server, because there was one main server, you had to put what computer you were on. And I don't actually know why, but for some reason we had to on all of the papers we did in any computer class. If I wasn't writing in English and I was on a computer, I had to put what computer I was on. If I was on a different one the next time, I had to put that one on there the next time. And the numbers were on the back of the monitors. Some of them were on the back of the towers, and the towers were never really easy to find. So what I did was I went through our computer class, this computer programming class, and I, I mapped by hand all the computers. And then when I was in English class, we went to the computer room and I got permission to come back there in South Tower and I mapped those. And then using my teacher's help, I was able to map all the teacher's computers in the school. And then there was one other computer lab I was, I had to uh, ask for permission, but someone gave me a, a sheet record of the computers sitting in that 
you know, in that room, so that way I could find out what was in there, how it was mapped out in that room too. And I built a program where, no matter where you were at, you could open up this program and it would show you what computer you were sitting at in that room. And not only did it highlight your spot red, it would tell you what your computer number was. Now it didn't tell you what any of the other computer numbers were. It did show you where all the computers were in that room, but it did tell you which one you were at. And so that took a lot of knowledge to figure out how to do, and that was probably one of the most complicated programs I ever came up with as a kid, um, as a teenager, you know. And um, I did come up with a couple other ones where I came up with one for my dad because he had dozens and dozens of movies, and basically he could go in and he could put in put his movie, the title, hit, uh, enter, and then the, the, the program would just alphabetical order it. And then if someone wanted to rent one out or something, there's a little button he could click and then he could add who rented it out or who borrowed it. And so this, these were the most complicated things I ever came up with. Um, I did figure out how to build a computer inside of a two-liter bottle. And although I didn't figure out exactly how to do all this stuff that I was doing with it, it, it I had found open source technology where I could copy and paste programs, the code for it, and build on top of this computer. I put Linux in it, put Linux in it, put Sunsoft in it, and I just kept building on top, building on top. Even though I wasn't actually coding, I was learning how all this stuff worked together. I learned how the different layers in the computer worked, how you have the hardware, you got you know, the uh, firmware, then you got your API, then you have user space, and I figured out all these different things, the kernel and the API and the user space, and it really allowed me to do more, but I was doing stuff that if you had told somebody at the time that I built it in 2000, 2001, if you had told somebody, look, I have a computer inside of a two-liter bottle that you only can plug in through this serial port at the top of the, the cap, they would say, no way, you've got to have room for ventilation, you got to have room for this, you got to have room for that. Now, if you told them, I have a motherboard, with a CPU, some RAM chips, and the only video output is the basic output through the top of the board, and you cannot plug in a keyboard or mouse or monitor into it. They'd probably believe me then, because that's all it really was. But in reality, it was a computer in a bottle. And I would take it to school, plug it in, and it was designed to where a few computers, if you plugged it into, you could access it. And it was coded that way on purpose. Uh, um, when it got taken away from me because I got in trouble and the, basically the police took it as evidence and it didn't really make news or anything. It was almost hushed, hushed that it even existed. Because that kind of technology, if people knew in 2002 that that type of technology was available to some kid in school, it, it probably would have been a big deal. But. The, the problem is, is everything I do, people tell me all the time, you can't do it, you can't do it. When I first told um, my, my uh, brother-in-law, my sister's husband, who had been doing web page design for 10 years or so, I told him, I said, I'm going, I want to design a type of encryption where it's basically like a fake quantum superpositioning with binary. He laughed. I told um, professors at colleges this, that they were mathematical geniuses. 
they laughed. I told so many people this stuff. This is what I want to do. They laughed. Told me this is impossible. This cannot exist. The ideal that you're thinking of isn't even logical. And then here we are, 2020. I built my first generator that actually encodes binary superpositioning bits. Now this means I can take an input and it will actually build a binary field and mine onto that field and eventually no matter what is inputted will get the same field no matter what's inputted. So I can now not tell somebody what I want to send them but I can send them a a superposition of information to that end result field and they will eventually find it. That's crazy, right? They can put anything in there and it will build them a field and then if they keep mining on top of it, eventually they'll get to the same field I have. Even if we input completely different things. And so I'm building the impossible. When Snowden was arrested, he was looking for something called elastic storage. This is a storage that only exists in the encryption field. It doesn't have to be on the computer, it doesn't have to be online. And here in 2020, excuse me, now here in 2020, I developed a article generating program that uses something like elastic storage, but it's actually a little bit more hardened than elastic storage. So it's just the encrypted based storage. But when you build it on your computer, you can be online or offline. The only difference between what he was looking for and what I have built is he, in his type of storage thought process, you would be able to save and delete out of it. Out of mine, you can't delete it once it's built. You, I mean, like you can't, you can delete what you see, but it still exists. So basically, what I have is a hardened digital storage that requires nothing store it to. It doesn't require me to store it to a hard drive or SS or, or even the RAM. It does not require it. It can be done mathematically by hand. Put on paper, sent to the mail, handed by person. does not matter. The other person can get it and can decrypt it mathematically by hand. Everything I did in this new type of storage that I built even when I first started doing it, one of my friends who, who got the ideal in my head, me and him built it together, and I did the coding, he did the designing of how it should look and how it should work. Um, he said, I want a newspaper and a QR. Now, I already had a QR messaging system where basically it was like a blockchain and a bunch of QRs, but it could only go so big. And then it got to a point where we couldn't put any more data into the QR. So you always had this point where the messages had to stop and you had to start over. And you always needed it to refer to something. Either an 
up to 200 bits of characters or a website. And he said, I, I want to be able to do a newspaper where that one QR is the entire newspaper, the entire history of the newspaper. You know, I want to be able to sell this on the streets, have a printer, and people pay me a quarter, I print off a QR, hand it to them, now they have to pay. I said, okay, I, I can do that. I can't do that. I said, I don't know how long it'll take. And so I spent coding out how the end result of the paper should look like. And we spent almost two years going through different trial and error before we came up with this great setup. And we mimicked other bigger companies. We mimicked uh, Medium. Now Output mimics Medium. And it worked so well. And then I said, well, there's got to be forms of verification. There's got to be this. There's got to be that. And in his mind, he's like, ah, now that matters. But then we found a system called Itty Bitty Site. And Itty Bitty Site allows you to turn anything into a link using a hash technology. And without Itty Bitty Site, I would have never figured this out. No joke. Because... I didn't know this one form of encryption. It's a cylinder or CRC type encryption means it can be de- it can be encrypted and decrypted easily. And then on top of that, he, they had uh, uh, Mr. Alcor who built Itty Bitty Site. He he compressed it so we can make it 30% smaller than it actually input is. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. But when uh, my friend's brother found it. He gave it. He told my friend. And then my friend told me. And I, I, I tried it out. On my second try of just playing with this, just typing stuff in it and we'll see what happens. Not only did I understand exactly what was going on, but I, I replied to him and I said, I can build a mesh net through this. And he was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I was like, I can build a hash-based mesh net. We can build an entire internet out of this. And now there are people who are working on um, ways to make this one type of technology even better. I took this technology and I built a generator. I figured out how to run pictures through it, how to store pictures through it, how to store, how to do all these different things using similar technology. And we built some of the first different things that ever existed that years ago people were telling Snowden you would never be able to do this and now it exists maybe not exactly the same as Snowden wanted but it does exist there is a way to build a digital uh, newspaper digital article and have a chain of them connected together so when we first built these these news chains as I call them would get so big that it was just like unmovable through the internet you had to have a, a, a specific way to move it you had to either store it on something or now it's like this kind of defeats the whole purpose so we figured out a way to make everything smaller so you can go into the generator hit enter and it, it's now even smaller than it was before it's less secure but has a few new features you can edit on the fly you can insert data into the that's encrypted inside of it for authentication. 
And if you use the generator, it actually teaches you how a Bitcoin transaction is, to, is built up. And it, it kind of has all these little neat things in it. And so we, we made that those links smaller. Well, by doing that, it allowed us to be able to short link the link. Now, essentially putting a one of these long hash links inside of a short link is storing it on a server. But we can hide in the numbers. You've ever heard hiding in public, hiding in plain sight? That's what we're doing. We're actually using public data stuff, the public data systems to hide these hash links to where, yeah, it's a little bit easier for a quantum computer to guess that, that hash we're using at the end of that, you know, bitly link or whatever. But the end result of it is this bigger, larger hash link that can be stored anywhere, in any way, online. We can already store it offline. I mean, technically, it's offline, so we put it into a hash link, or we put it through a web browser or something. Or a funny thing is, like, there's this thing called Wayback Machine that actually looks for stuff online and starts storing everything it can see. This system bypasses that so you can actually build these papers and until you hit refresh way back machine never even knew you did it so no these systems that were put into place to be able to see everything that happens online we're bypassing that we can bypass NSA security bypass things that are watching us the great thing is if we put the internet into these type of hash mesh net systems we could reduce the amount of traffic online by almost 70%. Which means the amount of actual traffic going through the net wires could be reduced 70% by just using this hash mesh net system built on top of Alcor's baby site. And to prove it, I have built multiple websites and connected these websites internally and not only do they work really, really well, they're fast. The first time your computer decrypts one of these links and no longer has to call a node to decrypt it again, the great thing is you can actually run the node on your own. So you can completely offline and view the internet. It's crazy. And because we can store images this way, well, guess what? We don't have to store images online no more. What can we do is traffic and flow and all these different things, and we can we can make it faster, better, and scalable at an extremely, extremely better rate. But getting people to even notice it exists is the problem for us right now. That's always the problem. Is first you have everyone tell you it can't be done, it can't be done, you're stupid, you don't understand. That's not how math works. To oh, you're using this other math to do that, and it does work, even with technology from 20 years ago, 50 years ago. What? No way. People back there in Archimedes this time could actually perform the math that we're doing. That's crazy. We're talking about um, hundreds upon hundreds of years ago, people could have performed this mathematical formations to, def- to actually encrypt information into a string of characters and numbers. 
if we knew the formula they used, we could decrypt it to this day. That means stuff that I'm building right now, because A, we're using public types of encryptions, generic types of decrypting keys, and the stuff we're doing is very basic. A hundred years from today, if anybody knows how to do it, they can still view it. This episode has no outro sponsor, so I just want to say to everybody, thank you. Um, I know I haven't done any recordings in a long time, and I've been, going, I've been having a really rough patch in my life, and most of my life has been like that, and that's fine, but I also have been doing great things. I, I got to go to Philly for a meet-up and meet, meet, meet the other person that helped me to write a paper the first time ever, and uh, at the same time, I've been struggling a lot. I've been trying to make that struggle teach me new things so that way I can keep bringing out greatness with everything I do. And at the moment, um, I am working on a new user interface for private paper, so I'm hoping within, hopefully by the end of the year or by March, that the interface and the usability of private paper will be so easy that you and a child can do it. Um, but at the moment, we're just looking to make it easier for everybody and it's used in 35 countries on your screen right now there's going to be a little link just go ahead and click it give Pirate Paper a try see what you can do with it have some fun use the buttons on there to give some assistance and help and you know as always try to enjoy your day